for January 9th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 184. Cats that look like Hitler. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Only two left in the lifeboat this week. (laughs) (laughs) We've thrown the others overboard, and we are, uh, you know, we are paddling with our hands uh, as fast as we can for the shore of, uh, of, you know, popular culture punditry. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's Matt Rather here with Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, I'm like the snarling Bill Zane who's like thrown the women and children out of the boat. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually kind of exciting. We rarely have a two-hander, uh, you know, and Sheely and I do it a lot on the TFT podcast. But uh, on the Overthinking podcast, it's, it's always more of a roundtable thing. And it's, it's a lot harder to do a two-person podcast uh, because, you, you, you know, you're responsible for that much greater a proportion of the uh, – you know, of the, the conversation. Um, and, you know, you can't let it flag or you can't go um, um, um the, the way I always do. But I, we're going to give it the old college try, right? Yeah, sure. Romantic dinners for one are similar. You have to do twice as much work. <laughs> <laughs> and I have my share of those, so don't worry about that. And there's a, uh, you know, I mean, there's a problem with, like, cutting your food with the knife, then putting the knife down with your right hand and picking up the fork. And, the, and never mind. That's just... How does that work? I have no idea. I was taught as a child the two different styles of eating, and I taught myself a third in sort of like a Bruce Lee, all styles, <laughs> no style kind of, uh, kind of strategy. You created, of, yeah, you, you, you created, um, instead of Jeet Kundo, you created Eat Kundo. Exactly, exactly. The way of the intercepting fork. And, and, much, and much like the ideal fighting style, it really pretty much involves hitting something with a shovel. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, Sifu Lee, uh, well, no, Sifu Peter. Um, oh, the, uh, thank you. <laughs> we were calling this, very, we were calling this uh, episode the straw man episode because we, uh, we in, our, in our pre-show and trying to decide what on earth we're going to talk about, we proposed creating straw men, uh, you know, sort of argumentative uh, or logical straw men and then knocking them down for an hour, which I think we're going to do in a particular way. But that got us, uh, that got us on to the, uh, the question of the week. What is your favorite straw man? Um, Pete, uh, I'm going to toss this one over to you. What is your favorite straw man? Why, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate it. It was very kind of you to send this question my way. So my favorite straw man is actually from Magic the Gathering. <laughs> it's called the Reaper King, and it's a, it's a scarecrow lord for a tribe of scarecrows that they created for the Shadowmoor expansion. Now, the Shadowmoor expansion is an interesting conceptually because it was a, over the course of the year, they made four different sets of magic cards all of them were more or less about fairy tales but the first two were sort of the sunny positive side of fairy tales and the second two were sort of the dark twisted side of fairy tales and the reaper king this evil scarecrow that was the king of the scarecrows was like the big one of the big uh, splash cards of the first set of Shadowmoor when the fairy tales all turned dark and uh, what, she, what the scarecrow what the reaper king does is uh, he if you have other scarecrows as soon as a scarecrow enters the battlefield it can destroy anything that you want, any permanent you want can be destroyed. He also gives other scarecrow creatures plus one, plus one. So in that way, 
He's he's uh he's sort of like an internet argument. Like he increases not only is he a very powerful straw man, but he increases by his presence the the strength and validity of the other straw men that are around him. <laughs> and most notably, he makes use of a very complex hybrid mana uh, requirement, wherein his cost is ten, but you can reduce it by one by playing up to a one mana of each color. So it's a very complex card. There's a lot going on. It's got a picture of a rotting pumpkin on it, and I just feel like if this guy were to get in touch with the guy from the Wizard of Oz, uh, he probably would conquer the world. So there you go. When it comes to Scarecrows, like the question of make a really, really badass Scarecrow, I feel like that's an interesting creative question. <laughs> like, how do you go about doing that? Uh, and, and of course, Christopher Nolan answers it in one way in, uh, in The Dark Knight, right? Oh, right. is it? No, yeah. it's in... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Answer, uh, no, it's in Batman Begins. No, it's Batman Begins. Right? It's yeah, Batman Begins, yeah. of course. But his, answer, his answer is, uh, you know, hallucinogenic drugs. Exactly. Make it as li- as as unscarecrow like as possible. <laughs> the idea is that to make a scarecrow, you take something that is nothing at all like a scarecrow and put a bag on its head. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to talk anything about what that right. means or I mean, anything. I think like that. you, you got to talk about two separate kind of species of scarecrows. There's the burlap yeah. bag, burlap sack on the head scarecrows with like you know button eyes and like a smile painted on. And yep, then, yep, yep. And then there's the pumpkin on the head scarecrow, which is a you know which is a, a totally different thing, right? Right, right, right. And would would you say that like the headless horseman and Ichabod Crane? and such is sort of related to scarecrow related character creation <laughs> like this idea of this sort of it's a puppet man it's like the, the fear of the puppet man and the body is independent of the soul and all this other stuff oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like the golem yeah exactly or like the golem like you can sort of you can animate or frankenstein right you can animate matter without yep. without a soul and like mary shelley's frankenstein the reason it's so boring is that it takes <laughs> <laughs> mega burn, mega burn. <laughs> the reason Mary Shelley stinks. No, no, Mary on. Shelley didn't stink. She was, you know, she was uh, what Snog and Percy there on the grave of Mary Wollstonecraft, right? Like uh, they that wasn't that like the thing they like met in. Uh, they they met on her mother's grave to have their trysts or something. Which is um, especially when you consider what a wonderfully torrid and strange and beautiful relationship her parents had. That is just bizarre. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Although I know, there's more in their writing that I find that sort of sense of liberation. And William Godwin, right, is her, is, was her, uh, for a long time, not husband. But then to legitimize Mary, they got married, I believe, right, is what happened. Uh, we studied them a lot in college. This sort of idea of this, like, you know, neo-enlightenment or like, proto-anarchist idea of, like, the, the sort of the effect that marriage and contracts have an individual liberty, right? And uh, them sort of resisting that kind of social norm on the grounds of, of various first principles. So Mary Wollstonecraft's awesome. I'm a big fan. She's also um, one of my favorite Wikipedia vandalisms ever because it was her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it was her birthday. And I'm like, oh, Mary Wollstonecraft. And of course, Mary Wollstonecraft's pretty arcane. Like, you know, um, not that's another magic card reference. But, um, <laughs> but uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft... Uh, um, <laughs> on, on her birthday, Wikipedia made her a featured article, and uh, they describe her writings and her life, and it's got this very stately, uh, stately black and white picture. And someone had just put in the first sentence like "is a huge lesbian" or something like that. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and it was like I, I didn't enjoy it because I appreciate people calling each other that, but there was something about the, um, the like the. the 
the oh gosh the the way that the people who interacted with it so thoroughly confirmed my expectations as to how they were going to behave uh-huh. you know what I mean? it's like okay like this is what wikipedia vandalism is about like it wasn't creative it, it was like there was nothing about it that was at all reminiscent of what was going on in the article um and it was just it came from this gut reaction of trying to find something to complain about which again is what i think a lot of the internet is um is just people who are upset about something else and arguing about unrelated things um but yeah but i, I don't know i, I shouldn't have I shouldn't cheer for such things at all because they're you know they're bad. Well, they're, they're politically they're politically retrograde. But like if you if you can't take take pleasure occasionally in something that you know uh, that your best self would would refute on political grounds, you're not going to get much pleasure out of life. You know, I just I just thought that it was kind of funny that like the people who would say that about people like went to the Mary Wollstonecraft article on Wikipedia, <laughs> you know, like, like that somehow and that they went there and they read it, like or at least they read the first sentence. Right. <laughs> And it's maybe they like, didn't, but at least they highlighted the first sentence and deleted yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, it would it would be like if somebody like went to the public library and like checked out three copies of the Feminine Mystique <laughs> and just wrote boobs on the inside front cover of all of them. You know, like it's like that little bridge too far. It's like the people people act with such insensitivity to these things that you assume that they haven't been exposed to it. So that's the comedy, right? I think is that oh no, they do know who Mary Wollstonecraft is. In fact, the person who wrote that's actually a PhD in women's studies. Uh, you know, at uh, at um. At uh, the University of Colorado, I'm just going to say for no reason. Um, there is a kind of pleasure. I, I mean, there is a kind of pleasure in watching people do what you expect them to do on the internet. You know what I mean? Like, even if, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Salman Rushdie um, uh, wrote something, and I have it in my commonplace book. I keep a little commonplace book of. I used to keep it in like this, you know, artisanal notebook that I had. Uh, You're just sticking to your guns. You're just sticking to those. <laughs> Just the, uh, <laughs> uh, that I bought at a Barnes and Noble when I was a teenager and would like laboriously uh, copy, uh, you know, passages of literature I liked, um, it, you know, in the fountain pen someone had given me for my 16th birthday. Right. Uh, but now I just uh, now I just I just, uh, you know, copy and paste things off the Internet into like a, uh, you know, a big text file that I keep. That's my uh, that's my commonplace book. And uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, in one of the, the quotations in my commonplace book, talks about the class of the professionally offended, you know, uh, like as distinct from from literary critics. There is a class of people who are just professionally offended by things and like express their outrage. And I, I think that that the Internet is is obviously it's full of those people we're all those people uh really on the internet and like you know i i'm shocked that uh you know common threats and overthinking it don't um don't sort of degrade into expressions of outrage all the time uh it's amazing that we actually do uh do manage to have an interesting conversation now now that i've said that i know that you know our uh, our commenters being as contrary and anti-authoritarian as as i am uh, are going to prove me wrong uh, in the show notes for this uh, <laughs> <laughs> and are just going to like take take umbrage at you know pretty much everything uh, that we say in this podcast but i'm i'm you know i don't know in in that case i i i like you <laughs> will be glad to know that mary wollstonecraft is a huge lesbian no, she's not. That's the point. 
And it doesn't matter. Even if she is, it's fine. Then, no, the point is that the person is saying it just to be a jerk. That's what the <laughs> point is. And there's no other reason you would say that. Like, there's no other the goal it accomplishes. I don't think anybody feels intimidated by that statement on that Wikipedia page, too. That's part of what makes it funny is that it's harmless, or at least it feels harmless, because it's like anybody who's reading the Mary Wollstonecraft Wikipedia page is, is probably on the, on the safe side of the front lines, so to speak, at least for that moment. Um, Matt, can you slow down for just a hot second? Just, like, take a breath and slow down, because you went through a lot of stuff right there real fast. And just explain to me and to everybody, I mean, I sort of know, but I want to hear your take on it, what a commonplace book is, whether you think people should have one, and, like, how to go about making one? Yeah, uh, I, I will. I, you know, the second two questions are the easiest. People yeah. should have one. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go about making one by, uh, you know, I don't know, by having a notebook or having a text file that you, you copy things into. A commonplace book is, uh, it's one of these kind of belletristic old man of letters things. We, I mean, we should say man or woman of letters uh, today because of... The- if it's Bellatrix, it's definitely a woman of letters, right? <laughs> <laughs> and quite Lestrange. Well, no, but anyway... <laughs> Bellatristic is a... Is a- uh, a pejorative that that John Hollander, who taught both me and Pete, uh, you know, uh, what poetry writing, verse writing yep. in mm-hmm. college, um, and is a, a poet and, and critic who is, you know, well thought of among his peers. Uh, he, he used to say, uh, and it's you know, it's from the the French words that looks like bells, letters, right? Um, <laughs> That you know that refer to kind of hoity twitty hoity twitty literature, right? Uh, and he would say, "Oh, that's a lot of belletristic palaver," and that's been my favorite, like you know, <laughs> put down that I use in my head and that I actually never say out loud to anyone. As I, you know, as I was sitting around the seminar table, right? You know, I don't know, discussing the B text of Langland's P- Pierce Plowman or something. It's like, oh, that's just a lot of belletristic palaver. <laughs> but uh, but I digress. A commonplace book is as you know as you read, as you live the life of the mind, as you become a man or uh, or woman of letters, uh, you read a lot of books and you find passages in these books that that are particularly resonant to you, that speak to you uh, for whatever reason, for for uh, you know public or private reasons. These passages just kind of jump out at you, and you copy the the practice is that you copy these things out into a. Um, um, into a commonplace book, and you know, commonplace here meaning um, saying or old saw or uh, uh, kind of truism, right? Like an ep- like an epigram, like sure. a yeah, like a fortune cookie kind of thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> after a fashion, uh, and you put in bed after. It, and that's how it end, works. At the end of the thing, you know, your yeah. co- your commonplace book in bed, and. Uh, and so, right, it's so that you have this record of, um, you know, of things that you, uh, that you have read that you found particularly persuasive or, you know, particularly interesting for some reason. I suppose to a certain extent technology has rendered this obsolete because you can actually take two or three words. If, like, a phrase sticks in your memory, you can take two or three words of it, um, you know, and, like, put it into some sort of search engine in some kind of e-reader or something like this. And, you know, uh, with no more than half a dozen tries, you can probably find the passage uh, of whatever work in the history of, you know, literature in any language that you want. Um, but there is something, you know, there is something that kind of imprints it on your soul of, like, of actually copying the thing out in pen, which is how you're supposed to do it. Or, you know, more recently like Xeroxing it and like pasting it into a kind of literary scrapbook or uh, doing what I do and copying and pasting things off the internet and, and uh, you know, uh, putting them into a, um, 
uh, putting them into a text file that I maintain that is my commonplace book dot dot uh txt file you know huh. and i i do this because i like to think of myself as a man of letters the, uh, you know what i mean that is to say like i i have no other justification for my useless degree in english literature than to think <laughs> of myself as a man of letters so uh you know so i i keep this commonplace book cool i would say that Today, something like this would probably be more valuable rather than less valuable because even though you can find any of this information, you go on these long, winding trips through tons and tons of data and content, and it can be hard to find your way back again and hard to remember. And it's easy to think that you can remember because you sort of delegate cognitive function to your web browser in much the same way that in a relationship you would delegate it to your spouse, such that you never know where your keys are or something like that. Like you never know how to drive to a certain place because your spouse does. I read some interesting cognitive uh, science stuff on this where they were finding it was one of the one of the suppositions or one of the hypotheses was that this phenomenon which is observable has something to do with the difficulty that people have emotionally going through divorce is that as part of our being social animals we like to delegate aspects of cognition onto other people in our group Uh, and so if one person constantly does a certain kind of thing we let them do it and we don't get that sense of anxiety of not knowing it's that sense of like okay well the pilot's flying the plane i don't have to worry about it but in your own life, even in little things, sure. you might and, not know and, where anything is. And yeah. The way, yeah, or yeah, exactly. Like, you know, maybe your partner is the one who knows where everything is or like who has opinions about restaurants or something. And, you know, it's that cliche of like one, one partner asking the other, hey, do we like that restaurant or do we like that movie or do we, you know what I mean? Because you're delegating the, the task of, of liking or not liking or of evaluating things that are there um, onto, onto the other person. Right, exactly. And so similarly, I think we delegate a certain amount of, uh, of, of this faculty of finding to our web browsers, and we don't feel that anxiety of not being able to find something again or not knowing what it is because we assume the web browser is going to be able to do it for us. But then when the time comes, we might not necessarily actually do it or remember it or any of those things. So, I mean, I, I remember starting up stuff like this when I was in high school. Um, I particularly love to copy stuff out of Edward Gibbon because he just goes off on these wild, weird tangents, um, which don't seem really all that weird given the stateliness with which they're expressed, but making these sort of blanket col- – like these blanket cultural statements about people. I remember there was a whole piece on like gothic sexuality. And I don't mean like, I don't mean panic at the disco, you know, I mean like, uh, this isn't really gothic, but I just like to say panic exclamation point at the disco. Um, it's not, but, uh, but like how it's different from Roman sexuality. And I doubt that he actually was accurate about stuff and knew how these things worked in that sense. But he was really talking about Victorian sexuality. Um, well, right, but yeah, but, was a, I mean, there was a time before the, the professionalization of the academy where, you know, someone with sufficient authority could just hold forth on whatever they wanted and uh you know their stentorian voice was proof enough that you know what they're saying what they were saying must be true and i you know i am sort of falsely nostalgic for that time that i you know that i was never around for uh because i imagine i could have done quite well there yeah, well, I think it's a big problem in philosophy in particular and thinking because if you read Marx, you know, he comes out and, or even – I was just – I said it because I read him recently to do the Muppet article. But any any of the really major philosophers from sort of the pre-contemporary academic era of philosophy – I just want to point out this is the only website where you would hear a writer say, I was rereading Marx to write the article about the Muppets. Continue. <laughs> 
Um, so uh, it, if you look past a certain point back in, back in the day, people would make these statements and, and these, these grand statements that were part of their argument, and they would not necessarily offer evidence or track their syllogism all the way back every time they said something. But anybody who has to say anything about them has to go through all these hoops and explain where they got everything and how everything works out. I mean there are certain philosophers who do very, very robustly go back and explain and track everything, and even the ones who do sound like they're just making pronouncements. If you put the pieces together, it does tend to hang together. But it's it's hard to try to improve upon someone when you're constrained by like MLA and Chicago and all this other stuff. I've just found bibliography to be tremendously burdensome uh, and just difficult to get thoughts out in an elucidated manner that people can understand uh, when you have to do it. But of course, obviously, the burden of peer review is important. Uh, and by the way, my English degree, for the record, is not uh, useless. I make my living <laughs> doing stuff that I learned in my English degree. So just to give hope to people out there. Uh, but yeah, but. There are, one of the things I don't like doing is doing citations, which I still have to do from time to time. Um, okay, so so I have to. I actually have to answer the question. I haven't done. Yes, that yet. what is your favorite straw man? <laughs> no, I I actually mean straw man, not in the literal sense. When I asked the question, I meant it not in the literal sense, but in the in the sense of the the uh, logical fallacy. I mean, not. But strictly. I flipped it on you. Flipped it. It was flipped over like a straw, a scarecrow pulled out of the ground and flipped over and put Absolutely. upside down. Like uh, you you took the pumpkin head right off of that. Uh, you know, um, right off of that thing. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> Pumpkin head right off of that thing. It must have been when you were kissing me. Like, I don't know. That's made me think of meatloaf for a second. Most things make me think of meatloaf. Uh, it's all coming back to me now. Continue. Most things make me think of meatloaf, but the you know the the baked uh, the baked hamburger. You know, not the uh, not the singer. Some mashed potatoes and some gravy. That is like a bat out of hell right there. That's good stuff. <laughs> I um I meant the uh you know the sort of logical fallacy that involves misrepresenting your opponent's opinion. Right. right. That it, or and, uh, ex- explain to people exactly how this works. Well, so um <laughs> Pete like well, I- uh, Make a uh, make a slightly controversial assertion to me. <laughs> okay. Um M&Ms are not as good as Clark bars. The kind of the kind of um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm being really tough for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's good. Oh, okay. M and M's are not as as uh, as good. You said as as Clark bars. Only fascists resort to good and evil uh, in you know judging things out into the world, and uh, your your attempt to um, push your standards of good and evil about on me is a fascistic and what's more colonialist. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily call that strictly a straw man, but I see where you're going with that. <laughs> I, w- I would say, I mean, that was bad because I made the supposition wrong. It would be easier if I said M&Ms are better than Clark bars. And then I said like, well, but people like sugar better than chocolate, like chocolate better than just sugar candy. Right. So if people like sugar candy better than they like chocolate, well, then it's, it's obvious. It, that would be a straw man. It would be like, well, people like sugar candy better than they like chocolate. So M&Ms have to be better than Clark bars. Right? Because I, I set up – or like it would be absurd to – or no, actually a better straw man would be, what, am I supposed to make a candy that's like minuscule that like you can barely hold? Like you're making these tiny candies. Right. That if, all, I'm, if all of our candies – you just want to replace all of our candies with M&Ms and that would be a disaster. Exactly. That's more like what a straw man is, where you like invent an argument that's not what your opponent is saying. And I know we've reversed it and mixed it up while we're explaining it. It's like the worst explanation ever, but it's, it's uh, entertaining. Let's go to Wikipedia and say, um, <laughs> let's 
on Wikipedia and see what they I have. I can make a better okay. assertion. I can make a better assertion. That's uh, so, okay, great. Uh, our, so person A, our society should spend more money helping the poor. Person yes. B, well, studies show that handouts don't work. They just create more poverty and humiliate the recipients. That money could be better spent. Right? Uh, the, and, you know, begging entirely uh, the question of whether person A is suggesting handouts or not. Yes, uh, yes, say, exactly. Um, when they say that the society should spend more money helping the poor. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, you are the all-knowing <laughs> oracle that we uh, – So what I'm saying is that you have an M&M and it's got an M on it. Oh, man. Logic and M&Ms. Candy and logic don't mix. That, um, if, you, if you were a logical person, you wouldn't eat candy. So yeah. there's the problem. <laughs> and it's very, it's very difficult to pick my favorite straw man uh, without getting um, – political probably terrorists uh, and they're winning is my favorite straw man you know because uh because so many things um would allow the terrorists to win uh the and i and i want to do many of those things and uh i i don't think the terrorists win uh when i do them uh, like not shop for example. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 so, right. Uh, that, that's definitely a straw man, which is like, you know, oh, you can't, you sh- we shouldn't cut the marginal tax rate or we shouldn't raise the marginal tax rate uh, because the terrorists will win, right? Like, oh, you must love terrorism, right? Like, because you're trying, whatever, I don't know. It's some sort of like loosely, loosely correlated political position um, where it's just like, uh, oh, no, then you're handing the world to Osama bin Laden. Yeah, it, would be something, it would be something like, uh, suggest to me that we, we, we should raise the marginal tax rate. Hey, hey, Matt, I have a great idea. We should raise the marginal tax rate. Pete, socialism doesn't work. Yeah, there you go. There it is. There's, there is a, uh, there's a straw man. Excellent. Oh, and by the way, uh, by doing that, um, you, have, you have now uh, triggered an ability to destroy any of my permanents and uh, given all your other straw men plus one plus one. So there you go. Reaper kings and fours. Definitely. <laughs> So, um, so the straw man that we had thought that we would, uh, that we would set up and uh, kind of demolish on this podcast uh, has to do with the fact that it's a two-hander and the two-hander is me and Pete. Um, because Pete and I are both involved in sort of creative pursuits, performing arts pursuits. Um, you may not know this, uh, uh, overthinking podcast listeners, uh, but uh, I am a, a graduate student. I'm an MFA candidate in acting at UCLA. And Pete is, though I hold a useless English degree uh, from our alma mater as well, and, and Pete, who holds the same useless English degree as No, mine, I have a useful English oh, degree because my real job involves writing and editing. Well, Pete was, <laughs> a, Pete was a, uh, a year behind me, so they instituted the useful program in the English <laughs> department right after I left. Uh, right after I left college. Uh, Pete does a lot of um, improv comedy. Yes. Uh, performance around his hometown of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Yep, and I'll be in uh, I'll be in Raleigh, and I'll be in Carborough, North Carolina, the weekend of uh, what is it? Thursday, February sixteenth. If anyone wants to come see me perform uh, improv comedy in North Carolina, so there you go. Excellent uh, field trip. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Fun times. But, uh, so, you know, here's – and so we thought that, that we might um, have an interesting talk talking about, uh, talking about creative pursuits because I know, you know, a lot of the, the overthinking of writers um, do creative things also. John Parrish is a novelist and you <laughs> should buy his novel. And if you buy it, you should buy it through an Amazon link on overthinking. And the novel is called Too Close to Miss and it's a cool Boston crime novel and you'd like it if you were to read it and only cost like a couple bucks, maybe like four bucks now, I think. And, so uh, totally worth it. Uh, Mark Lee and Jordan Stokes are both both musicians, and, yep. you know, and I mean it goes on and on. And um, 
So we, we want to talk a little bit about, about overthinking and creative pursuits. And the straw man that, that I, I was proposing that we set up uh, is this one. Well, Pete, we can't be creative because everybody knows that uh, analysis and creativity are, you know, anathema uh, one to the other. And uh, so, you know, the, the whole premise of being a quote unquote overthinker is, uh, is anathema to the idea of, you know, doing creative things in your own life. Exactly. This idea that you that that criticism is a big problem for people who are creative, because having a critical attitude, or also you could even extend that straw man and say you shouldn't um, obsess about the work of other people. You should be true to yourself and only look inside of yourself for that like pure spring of creativity that's going to fulfill all of your artistic dreams and ambitions, and not be polluted by like the ideas of others. Right? Yeah, sure. It's, that's, it's that's like the, it's a different straw man, but. Sure, that's the romantic. I mean, that's the 19th century idea, right? The capital, yeah, yeah, yeah. The capital R romantic idea of like you know spontaneous overflow of, of powerful emotion, and the idea that there are these like special people who are the yep. artists who like just by by dint of their extraordinary sensitivity or whatever, just see more deeply into things and feel more deeply, and for some reason can express that uh, deep feeling more beautifully. Um, in language, right? Yes, specifically in formal meters like iambic pentameter, which of course come from their deep and unsullied souls, and not in fact from previous poets. Um, not that I'm, of course, there's another straw man, right? Because I'm insulting Wordsworth as if he didn't know that, as if Wordsworth wasn't an educated man and didn't know in like the writing of the preface to. The, by the way, if you're interested in romantic poetry and you haven't read the preface to the Lyrical Ballads, uh, one of the most important pieces of literary criticism, I think, period, right? Like of sort of literary, not even criticism, not even in theory, but just sort of like statements of purpose. Mm -hmm. Is it the 1798 uh, edition? I forget exactly which one it was. But uh, the preface to Lyrical Ballads, where they talk about, where Wordsworth and Coleridge talk about that overflow of emotion. So let me, I mean, can I take just an abrupt left turn here? Uh, We are on target, Matt, and any any digression from our... our, We have hewn our podcast out of marble. We can, we have a block of marble, and inside of it is our podcast, and we need to chip away at it with precision until we find the podcast... Lying pristine within the block you know, of marble. Actually, be- believe it or not, Pete, I uh, I met a traveler from an antique land who said <laughs> two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sh- half sunk, uh, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command something something something. And it says, "I am Ozymandias, king of podcasters. <laughs> look on oh. my look on my episodes, ye mighty, and despair." Well, I met a tiger, tiger, burning bright, and it ate that guy. All right? So there. There you go. Um, the podcasting I, You know, I, I, won't take, I won't take my... No, take my, the digression. Take the digression. Go for okay, it. Okay. If you yeah. insist. Of course. <laughs> I am... Um, so I am... Uh, part of being a graduate student is finding, finding ways to support yourself. And I am uh, uh, TAing at, uh, at the university where I go to school. I don't know why I'm being cagey about that. It's UCLA, the university that I go to school. I dare you to try to find me there. There are like 60,000 people on that campus. So you're um, the only one without a tan, basically. Because <laughs> yeah, you burn yeah, like... Because the, <laughs> the actors are in, yeah, are in dark windowless rooms for, 
14 hours a day. Um, no. the, uh, uh, so my, my racket is that I am, uh, I am teaching English. So I suppose my degree is not all that useless. So I am, uh, I'm being subjected on a, on to unsuspecting undergraduates who are going to get me as their, you know, literary survey and composition, uh, instructor this quarter. And, uh, the class starts tomorrow. So I had to do something which I've never had to do before, which is assemble a course reader. Um, of you know poems, I had to sort of anthologize, I did, to to make a little anthology of poems that I want to study for the you know lyric poetry unit of my uh, of my course, and I I began with three little epigraphs from uh, I uh, from different people from different sort of explanations of poetry, and one of the ones. Uh, that, that one of the ones that that I used was the Wordsworth one that we were talking about. That that you know uh, poetry is the spontaneous overflow of uh, powerful feeling, and uh, po- poetry then then the actual artifact of the poem takes its origin from emotional emotion recollected in tranquility. Those are the kind of two poles of the uh, uh, of the Wordsworth definition. So right, so uh, there's that. Then the uh, the other one I have is from Sir Sir Philip Sidney's Defense of Poetry, um, and it's now for the poet he nothing affirmeth and therefore never lieth, which was another favorite kind of old saw that should go down in your commonplace book. By the way, the poet uh, nothing affirmeth and therefore never lieth. Um, the idea that poetic discourse is outside the scope of logical discourse. And right. then I, I have a third one from Eliot that I, that I will give uh, to my students, which is that um, uh, the poet must be difficult. That's what, that's what Eliot mm-hmm. says about poetry. The poet must be difficult. But I'm interested in this. The poet, uh, nothing affirmeth and therefore never lieth one. And the reason my mind went on this digression is because it seems on point to what, to what we're talking about uh, in this kind of straw man uh, argument, this false dichotomy that we're creating between analytical or critical work and, uh, and creative work. The, the, even sort of defenders of, of poetry and defenders of poetry against what? Well, defenders of poetry against Plato, I guess. Right, who in the Republic, the, the idea of poetry is that it's, you know, poetry is an imitation of an imitation. It's an imitation of the world, which is itself an imitation of the forms. And so it is this kind of denigrated, um, false, and kind of, you know, at, at a further remove from truth yeah. uh, sort of discourse. <laughs> you can also think of it as in defense of from John Lithgow from Footloose, <laughs> right? He was like the sort of moralizer who thinks that artistic expression is is hand in hand with uh, shenanigans and canoodling and needs to be banned in whatever small town and, in which and, that and person so happens the, to be the head on show. The claim of the poet in response is like, whoa, 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 buddy. I'm not uh, – Sorry, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't know, uh, kill your buzz. I'm, I nothing affirmeth. I, I nothing affirm and therefore never lie. Um, yeah. I can't say affirmeth because that's the third person singular suffix. Uh, it's called Anglo-Saxon. Look it up, people. Boom. Uh, but the, um, <laughs> I don't know if that boomed quite as hard as you wanted to, but go for it. <laughs> I, uh, you know, but even, you know, even the poets, like, sort of in, in their own defense will say, look, 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 this is a separate discourse. Drink. This does not belong in uh, the kind of the geometric proof uh, area of the academy, right? This does not belong in the kind of logical uh, or you know serious uh, uh, area of the academy. And I guess, I guess, what we want to do in the three minutes remaining us in this podcast is um, <laughs> is like complicate this notion, right? That uh, that 
being a critic, and by critic, let me let me be clear. By critic, we don't mean being a jerk, right? Because in a you know, I don't know, in a kind of colloquial way, saying that someone is a critic or is always critical could mean that someone is like unremittingly negative. Oh, everyone's a critic. Oh, waka waka waka, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> or is just a jerk, right? And that's that's not what we mean. What we mean is is closer to, you know, I don't know, using using your intellect uh, to try to understand works of art analytically, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so even that saying understand them analytically presumes that there's another way to understand them and kind of uh, participates in this this uh, uh, false dichotomy that, that we're trying to to avoid. That that you know that the intellect and you know that that fancy book learning has no place in the uh, in the arts, right? Have we right. established? So, yeah. Have we established at least the preposition that we are attempting to refute? I think so. I mean, I would give the example of say that you're listening to LMFAO. Right, you're listening to Party Rock by LMFAO. Go on. Um, so, so, so do that for a while, then come back. No, uh, so, and that's the song where it's like you know, every day I'm shuffling, you know, you know, and all other nonsense. It's great. I love it. Um, the jerk is the person who's like, I hate LMFAO. They suck. It's so terrible. It's not even music. Right. So that person is in a way a critic in a way. Of course, I always used to mean the opposite of what I just said or what I'm about to say. <laughs> but it's a critical act because you're, you're interfacing with the art that someone else has made and you're kind of like slapping your opinion on it. But the person who says every day I'm shuffling is actually a callback to Rick Ross's every day I'm hustling and connects the kind of grimier, harder core rap influences that Rick Ross is coming from with the sort of softer uh, sort of pop influences and also the electro and techno influences to create this nexus of communication where all of these different kinds of musics are interacting with the goal of appealing to a mass audience that is familiar with all these things while creating a sense of novelty out of, the, out of these familiar elements, right? And that, that's criticism as well. Um, and then the sense there, and then the, the straw man argument we're talking about, which has certain aspects of validity depending upon how you're articulating it, but in a general, like, broad, like, rock-on-your-head sense is very limiting, is saying, by, say, by spending any of your time at all thinking about that sort of thing, you're killing your own ability to be an artist, Right, like you, you are, you are focusing on the analysis. You're, you're focusing on anal- analyzing existing art. You're, and, and furthermore, if you do that to yourself, or you let anybody do that to you, or you let that into your life, it's going to be this like toxic influence where you're going to be going down this rabbit hole forever uh, of constantly like, like criticizing and counter-criticizing and debating, and it's going to just kill your ability to actually put together a party rock anthem, right? And, and then that, that I think that that pretty much articulates what, I'm, what we're talking about, right? And like we, have, if we are overthinking better, uh, overthinking it are about anything, we are about your ability to put together a party rock anthem. If you have one, put it in the show notes because we're looking for one. We're looking for the, the summer hits already, and it's only January because it's unseasonably warm uh, here in the States and yeah, right. many parts of the States. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, do you want me to trot out that, uh, that other articulation that we were talking about before the show? Yeah. You know, uh, you know who thought that, uh, you know who thought that uh, analysis and creativity were anathema? Hitler. No, I'm sorry. I, don't mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean his countryman, Rilke. <laughs> Rilke was his countryman of Hitler. No, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess know, in the sense that they might have. Not at all. Not at all. Okay, so if you again, these are these Sorry, are like must God, read. I was God winning myself. I, I was making a joke actually <laughs> about straw men, but never mind. Look, Hitler is nothing to joke about. <laughs> I can't even get through with a straight face. I'm sorry, like because that's all the people do is joke about Hitler. It's like 
55% of the internet. But there's a lot of overlap with other kinds of stuff on the internet, like hate speech and pornography and stuff, making fun of Hitler as part of all these things. But um, And also pictures of cats and making fun of Hitler has a large intersection. Uh, cats that look like Hitler. Great website. Uh, anyway, um, so the poet Rainer Marie Rilke uh, engaged in a correspondence with a, a younger contemporary, uh, back in the Dizay, as it were, about his own poetical works. Uh, the, the correspondent kept the letters from Rilke and, uh, and, and published them later on as a book, right? as a, a sort of a codex, as you were, rather than a scroll, a book that's bound on the side, uh, which they don't really have as many of anymore, but there's still something you can buy when your Kindle runs out of batteries. Um, but at any rate, uh, the book is called Letters to a Young Poet, and it's one of the really indispensable works to read as a writer to get a sense of uh, the role of creativity, the role of practice, um, you know, the role of the compulsion to write, the idea of a, of a living lifestyle, of a writing lifestyle. All these kinds of things are really – Rilke dives into all of them and articulates them in this wonderful crystal clear way. Now, Rilke died pretty young. I believe. Uh, and so he didn't really go on to make, uh, I don't know, uh, it, there's nothing he's written that's as famous as this in terms of like a magnum opus of, of poetical criticism. Um, uh, but, criticism, he did write poems though, you know. One, oh yeah, one, tons of them, definitely. But the, he doesn't have like a preface to the lyrical ballads where he like really just hashes out everything that is nearly as famous as this book of letters, mm-hmm. which has become a real, real text. So in the third letter, uh, he goes into he goes into criticism in a lot of different sections, but this is a section that I've wanted to apply to a bunch of different overthinking and articles that I've started and never finished uh, because it's an ambitious subject to write about. But uh, I'm going to quote here a little bit, which is not something I usually do at length on the podcast. Uh, but he's talking about a poem called "Roses Should Have Been Here," um, which Rilke calls a work of incomparable delicacy and form. He's undoubtedly being very nice. Uh, the letters tend to indicate that the young poet is actually not very good. Um, although I don't know, I got that sense from it, and he. <laughs> Rilke's trying to be a nice guy, but uh, but the the point is the young poet doesn't actually grow up to be a poet. He goes and he does something else. But um, but as he says and continues, he says that um, in his own opinion of it, uh, you're of course quite quite incontestably right. This is Rilke talking to the young poet as against the man who wrote the introduction. Uh, he's the poet disagrees with somebody who wrote something in the introduction of a book that that disagreed like that analyzed his poem and he doesn't really like what the guy said to analyze his poem and Rilke says let me make this request right away read as little as possible of literary criticism such things are either partisan opinions which have become petrified and meaningless hardened and empty of life and this is like the 1800s right and so they're even harder now it's it's like a fight between uh, two of those uh, caterpillar pokemon that turn into pupas and just like harden against each other uh, or else they are clever word games in which one view wins and tomorrow the opposite view. Works of art are of infinite solitude, and no means of approach is so useless as criticism. Only love can touch and hold them and be fair to them. Always trust yourself and your own feeling, as opposed to argumentation, discussion, or introductions of that sort. If it turns out that you are wrong, then the natural growth of your inner life will eventually guide to you to other insights. Allow your judgments their own silent, undisturbed development, which, like all progress, must come from deep within and cannot be forced or hastened. Everything is just station and birthing to let each impression and each embryo of a feeling come to completion entirely in itself in the dark in the unsayable the unconscious beyond the reach of one's own understanding and with deep humility and patience to wait for the hour when a new clarity is born this alone is what it means to live as an artist in understanding as in creating um, and this is a, a you know a, a lot of his paragraphs are like this they're just thunderbolts it's a wonderful paragraph um, now do you have a, a sort of gut initial reaction, Matt, that you want to throw at this thing? Well, it's, it's 
kind of certainly of its time, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Though, I mean, Rilke lived at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the, the 20th centuries from, uh, from 1875 to 1926 were his, his dates. And by the way, he was born in, in uh, Austria-Hungary, uh, in uh, Bohemia, in Prague, um, <laughs> not, in, not in Germany. Uh, right. So he was not a countryman of Hitler. He was not a countryman of Hitler. <laughs> So, yeah. uh, <laughs> right. I mean, except Austria. They were both born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Like, sure, I guess so. But not national. But the, this is before the 14 points and like the establishment of the self-determination of peoples. So, sorry. <laughs> you could go for Let's not digress anymore. Let's carve in that marble. Get into but, that But this is like – so like it, it, one of the interesting things in talking about like definitions of, of poetry or sort of statements of poetry uh, uh, about poetry by poets is where does the poetry come from and who are you responsible to, right? And Rilke's answer seems to be like from deep within and you are responsible to – too deep within, you know what I mean. You're responsible yeah. to kind of a vein of personal truth uh, that can't be touched by, um, uh, you know, uh, by works of uh, by works of criticism. Now, um, what what was the quote? More or less unfortunate misunderstandings, or more or less fortunate misunderstandings? Uh, let's see. Was that in the pa- was that in the passage that you read? Oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Let me get find the exact because it was long, so I need to. Because I, I actually, I mean, well, I this is another digression, but I think that a a fortunate misunderstanding is actually kind of poetically valuable uh, to a lot of, you know, to to the advancement of literature, right? Like, and this this has to do with Harold Bloom, I guess, and the idea of like a strong misreading. Uh, yeah. Of a of a former poet, but like so it it so I guess uh, long story short to answer your question, does anything strike me out of the blue? Well, yeah, it's very self involved, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It, it speaks to the artist as somebody who is laboring alone, um, and of course, maybe one of the big changes just technologically between then and now, or more culturally than technologically, really is so much art now is collaborative. Right, like so much of what we put together as artists is something that you do with other people. Of course, who am I kidding? Of course, it was collaborative then. It, it, this this is very clear that Rilke is not a playwright, right? I mean, I guess maybe he did write plays, but he's not. He doesn't work in theater because he doesn't have to work with anybody else. He's not. He's not an orchestral cellist, right? Who's like the artist must labor alone? No, the artist needs to practice with his orchestra, right? Like the artist needs to be capable of cooperating and collaborating with others and finding that sense. And as an improv comedian, of course, it's like, well, you got to find your group mind. You got to connect with the people that you're playing with. But definitely, it's like very much a product of a very specific sort of medium. And I think that, um, and that, and I think that poetry and the criticism of poetry, a lot of poetical criticism gets extrapolated out to refer to other kinds of art when people are talking about it. And I think that that's good because a lot of it's really awesome. And I prefer a lot of poetical criticism to a lot of the sorts of criticism that I read about fiction or other because just I think that it applies. A lot of it applies across, but this doesn't. Right, like this doesn't apply to forms of art that are collaborative, um, or at least it can't, or at least there are limitations to how it can do so. I suppose um, something along those lines. But yeah, in that sense, I totally see what you mean by it being a product of its time. Yeah. Um, so what what is the exegesis that you that you wanted to put on the uh, on the passage that you read? Okay, so if you're listening to the podcast now. First of all, settle down, settle down, take a sip of your whiskey or, you know, your Dr. Pepper or what have you, 
We're just being friends here for a second. You came here to listen to an overthinking a podcast, and we wouldn't lead you down this track unless there was something that was really relevant to what we believe is the mission of our side and what we're doing and how we love all you guys and how hopefully you guys love us too. Uh, and that's the section of this paragraph that really strikes me, which is that um, words, works of art are of infinite solitude and no means of approach is so useless as criticism. Only love can touch and hold them and be fair to them. Mm-hmm. Right? So, and, and this is why this paragraph keeps jumping out at me as something that I want to write about in reference to contemporary popular culture or any popular culture. Um, because here Rilke is basically saying you can't let other people into your artistic life because they don't have any love for you, right? Or they don't have any love for your work. They can't love your work the way that you love your work. You love your work in a special way, and other people can't love your work in that special way, right? And, and so if love has this quality that is able to hold poetry and hold works of art and be fair to works of art, uh, and love has this faculty, there's this sense that everybody else is hostile or the sense that nobody else loves it. And one of the big things about our podcast, which I always say, is, you know, don't apologize for what you love, um, when you have works of art that, that millions of people love, how is their critical contribution in the sense of them talking about what it means to them, them making connections of it to other things that they talk about, right? Them, them talk, like, is, it, is this the best, is this Sherlock Holmes movie better than the last Sherlock Holmes movie? Like, you go see Sherlock Holmes 2, and you're like, well, maybe it wasn't as good as Sherlock Holmes 1. A Rilke kind of – a straw man of Rilke, which in turn we're talking about as a straw man for a larger argument, would say like, you know, you are not being fair to Sherlock Holmes 2 by considering it in like comparative opposition to Sherlock Holmes 1 because this work of art needed to – was developed in infinite solitude, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> and as such, like it can't be art if, you, if you're thinking about this way. And certainly Robert Downey Jr. can't be being fair to his portrayal of Sherlock Holmes if he's thinking about it in terms of the first Sherlock Holmes movie. Or if he's thinking about Basil Rathbone or something like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, and I think this is where it connects with overthinking it because what we, I think, have traversed culturally this critical chasm that is deeply carved across the face of the 19th and 20th century in art, which is that art is something that you do by yourself. Right. Um, and, and then we have jumped over that, and it was never really true. Uh, I mean, it was never really true in the sense – it was like maybe true in a correspondence sense, like it accurately described the life of some writers, right? But it was never something that was a necessary or synthetic quality of the artistic process that existed independently of the experience of the artist. You know, Shakespeare certainly didn't write the plays alone. I mean, I'm not saying he had friends from the Illuminati or something. I'm saying that he was like, <laughs> you, gotta, you got to get the pages done, Bill, because we've got to do the show tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like that is an, a- an aspect and influence on the life that he does. Uh, and of course, that's an appeal, a transparent appeal to authority because there's no reason why the way that Shakespeare does it should be better than the way that anybody else does it. But it's persuasive, so I'll let it go. Um, but the point is that we are, we are talking about on this podcast and on this website, like works of art that are widely loved by people. And so may, it is time to go back and revisit this idea of the relationship between criticism and art with that in mind, I think. Because that's one of the cent- that love is one of the central qualities of a lot of the different schemes of artistic criticism, as long as you exclude the schemes of artistic criticism that say, like, art is bad. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> right? Like, if you're like, don't do art because it's inadequate or bad or a waste of time, don't really pay attention to those. You know, you shouldn't be interested. I mean, you have to pay attention to them because some of them have interesting thoughts that you have to learn how to talk about. But um, they should, I, I, would, I would not be a fan of internalizing those or classifying along, alongside the ones that are created by people who feel compelled to do this crazy thing that, that Matt and I and everybody else in one degree or another in our lives does. 
Um, so yeah, so, so that's sort of my, my take is that like, we, you know, we live and of course I can be like, it's cause of the Facebooks, right? It's to say social media revolution. It's the yeah. information superhighway. It's the aluminum tubes or I know that's the, that's the <laughs> nuclear weapons in, in Nigeria. Right. Cause, but anyway, you know what I mean? Like I can, it does seem a little bit cliche to, up to uh, attribute, attribute these, the tribute, attribute these things <laughs> to, to social media technology, because I think that the change precedes that a great deal. I think yeah. you can see it in AOL chat rooms as well as you can see it on freaking Facebook, and you can see it on Usenet for for goodness sake. And you can even see it in um, you know, you can even see it if you go to like a large regional high school and you see people come together, like a magnet school or like a you know a, a just and the way that the theatrical productions travel and collaborate, and how like one theater is now going to buy the theatrical product, the rights to the theatrical production of another theater, and bring their actors in and produce in their stage, mm-hmm. right? And like the, the the global devolution um, of the supply chain, the the way that the supply chain has been spread all over the world. And if I want to make a shoe, I get the sole from the Philippines and the laces from Japan, and I get the the leather from a cow, you know, and like all these things come together. Um, I don't mean to compare. Those places to cows. I'm just as anticlimax. It's a figure of speech, right? So, the, I mean, what, what you're talking about the the like the critical rubric for what you're talking about is the idea of like problematizing authorship, right? And like the the uh, problematizing. I'm just going to say it because I really I, I think it's an excellent word. Problematizing um, the the uh, the idea of of the kind of the lone person, the lone genius, you know, hunched in a garret over. Uh, you know, a scrap of parchment, you know, scratching away with a uh, uh, quill pen at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, if John were here, he would definitely say there is a lot of lonely, solitary work in writing a novel. And there is a a lot of lonely, solitary work writing a play, too. But it isn't necessarily, like, the loneliness and the solitude of it isn't what makes it good necessarily, right? Like, because there are collaborative aspects to it that are just as important. Sure, right. Well, both you and I meet sort of working in in theater and you working in... uh, well, theater also, uh, in, in the form of improv comedy. I mean, I guess both of us working in performing arts, like are, are familiar to that, to that, uh, with that, uh, phenomenon that only happens when the right people are in the room together, where mm. something somehow greater than the sum of its parts is, is created because, uh, you know, uh, because everyone just sort of seems to fit. I mean, there's a, there's a, um, uh, right. There's a, uh, there's a sort of weird combination of assertiveness and surrender, right? Like of, of in artistic collaboration that, uh, that, that makes it much, much, um, much, much better, you know? And yeah, it's yeah. easy to see, uh, in it. Well, I don't mean it's easy to see in that you see it often, but when it happens in improv performance, it's, uh, it's very easy to identify, you know, yeah. because because suddenly it's awesome, you know, and yes. I mean, suddenly this thing that was kind of tolerable and like an okay way to spend. <laughs> Why that's the nicest thing? Kind of tolerable. That's one of the nicest things you've ever said about, uh, about <laughs> long form about long form improv. <laughs> yeah. um, it's really funny for the people who are doing it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, you know that uh, right sometimes that you know you're like you know sitting around Herald Night on a Thursday right and like. Um, and suddenly a switch flips and everything that happens is, is pure genius. And it's not because, you know, you've been drinking. It's right. It's because something, yeah. something, uh, something incredible has happened. It's, it's no, I think it's no accident that the most popular in terms of like page views and in terms of getting linked from other sites and actually in terms of like social media virality, speaking of the Facebooks and the, you know, the, the aluminum tubes, um, is that, uh, that the, the most popular posts on overthinking it are the think tanks, right? Are the ones that we all do together. 
you know, yeah. um, because there's something there's something in this particular group of people where it, it just sort of uh, you set you you sort of set one another one another off. I still can't read that. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, your uh, impression of Darth Vader as a birther uh, (laughs) to to, uh, without peeing my pants laughing. Um, And it, you know, it took someone it it took someone asking you the right question. You know what I mean? It took someone kind of serving you up the right ball uh, for you to be able to hit that uh, with your racket. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, definitely. And I think that um, there's all sorts of implications of this in the way that we think about people's skills and talents and how they're put together. I think a lot of it, you can think about it in terms of business and in terms of your job and the discipline of teams and how to evaluate individual performance and all this other stuff. And it gets very, gets very complicated in that realm too. But I really think that it's true that get the right group of people together and you can really get some magic to happen. Uh, but that's hardly the kind of thing that I can put in like a, you know, a preface to the grand liturgical ballads of 2012, right? Oh. That people are going to like listen to as a mark of authority for decades to come because people don't do that sort of thing anymore. Uh, I mean, they do. I mean, people just don't care. But uh, I mean, I guess you could, if you write the right person, if I were like Russell, brand and i said that then it would make sense because <laughs> although people although his stock is falling right because uh he's, he's like you know his is less involved he like left that relationship with uh with katie perry right he got divorced so like does that mean russell brand is foolish or i guess not i don't even know do you think do you think you know katie perry is talking to herself asking herself like russell what do we think of this russell what do we think of that because yeah, <laughs> she delegated some part of her life to like russell brand making decisions for her right. like yeah. she was used to russell brand knowing where the restaurants were or where to find like where to put hang up the keys right. when you were done with them for the day yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and and also the like the you know crazy mile a minute talking and also the sort of having opinions and also the like ill-advised uh self over disclosure and also yeah. <laughs> you know like, there are a lot of things that carry uh, that that carry Patty, katie perry uh outsourced to russell brand cognitive tasks right yeah i mean the thing one of the, the, when we're talking about famous celebrity divorces if this is our, like recent celebrity divorces and this is the thread that we're on right now there is one thought that i've had all week uh, which is which is basically that like it must be really awkward for ben gibbard to date Right, like Ben Gibbard, of course, is the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, um, which is a lovely band. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't drip with sarcasm so much. No, no, no. Uh, he's also the one of the two main collaborators in the Postal Service musical project, which is awesome. And Death Cab for Cutie, of course, is is a is a very famous and uh, well respected band. It's not my kind of music, but it's not that far off. I I sort of am angry at them because I almost like them. Um, but, uh, but but I'm saying <laughs> that like your if, preferences. Oh no, you don't <laughs> right, like fine. this band and that's okay okay so anyway so he was married to zoe deschanel and they just got they just got divorced right or they just announced their divorce is imminent and i'm thinking it must be rough for him to go on dates because like when do you bring up the suicide pact right like because <laughs> he has a song called i'll follow you into the dark right about this guy and, like the girl dies and he kills himself and like that's what the song is about and it's one of their big hits and uh anybody he dates has heard the song at least hundreds of times thousands of Dude, times i mean maybe. what do you think what do you think is a more um is a more binding uh a pat, you know more binding agreement though like a marriage or a suicide pact you know which is more binding? Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, I guess in terms of theory, in theory, it's the suicide pact, but in practice, it's the marriage. Because in practice, if the person's dead, they're never going to be able to check whether you committed suicide. I su- no, I, well, I suppose, but like, uh, I, guess I, 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 phrased, I phrased the question wrong, I guess. What, what I mean is, um, 
which is more uh, capable of dissolution, you know, a suicide pact Uh or, or a marriage. That is to say, like, it seems to me that if you can, if you can unbind a marriage, it must be possible to unbind a suicide pact, right? Oh, I would think so. I would hope so. Uh, I mean, otherwise, I've otherwise I've made some mistakes in life that I, I can't correct. <laughs> Listening to Death Cab for Cutie just gets you so excited sometimes. Uh, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> no, that is a good question. I think I think it's a it's a good question. I think it, it, you could go back and talk about Anthony and Cleopatra, and you could talk about. Um, I think that what we're talking about here is kind of a refutation of the ontological proof, right? Which, of course, naturally, well, just this naturally. idea. There's this idea that in order to conceive of the greatness of a thing, there must be something like greater than the thing that like exists right. on a realer plane than your conception of it. Right. Yeah. And this and is used as a yeah. It, you go all the way up to you go all the way up the ladder to God. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this way of thinking of sort of superior and inferior imaginings and thinkings uh, is applied to romance a lot. And want, people want to think of grander and grander and more romancy and more lovey and more intensely and more committee like kind of stories. And this goes back thousands of years to like the people turning in, you know, man and woman, they turn into trees by the river and they're there forever because – and he's always chasing her with the leaves and it's an explanation for a particular phenomenon of flora and such and so, so on and so forth. And that's – it's romantic. That's what you do it because it's romantic because you're heightening this emotion that you're feeling, right? But I think people have had this in the culture long enough that they come to actually believe in this sort of like hierarchy of extremity. Um, I don't, and I don't necessarily really think that what Anthony and Cleopatra did is is better than just get married, right? Like like Anthony and Cleopatra being so in love that upon like the collapse of their empire, they would like throw themselves into a sort of like romantic suicide. Right, and she like clutches the asp to her breast, uh-huh. and it bites her, and it's uh-huh. like all sexual and all that other stuff. Like, I don't think that's better. <laughs> like, it might provoke like a stronger emotional reaction, but I, I refute the idea that that's like something that you should aspire to because it seems like a pretty bad outcome to me. Right? Like, um, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe this is just my sort of homespun New Jersey wisdom, <laughs> but it, but it's like the, the person who has the biggest posturing. You know, like I don't know. In my day, back in when I was a child, we had a vernacular word called poser that I feel like I would want to apply to something like this, where it's like, what's here's the question, and we started this this podcast with Titanic, so I'll bring it around back to Titanic, and I think this is a question a lot of guys had when we watched Titanic. Like, who deserves to be the protagonist of Titanic? Leonardo DiCaprio or the guy that Rose marries after Titanic, who she has a bunch of kids with and lives with for an entire life? Right? Like, which of those is more romantic? Well, Leonardo DiCaprio, that's more romantic. You're on the freaking Titanic, and you made love once, and then he froze to death in front of you, and it was spoilers. Sorry, the boat sinks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and, well, I mean, like, you know, a pact never to let go, right? Yeah, exactly. She, she exactly. broke that shit. Uh, stuff, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, no, she did. And then, like, but I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to. To see, because it, it is also sort of a common kind of like snarly male criticism of like the the romance in the story. But I think there is something legitimate there, which is like which is harder, which is tougher. If we're going to see difficulty as a measure of value, which is also kind of spurious. Well, certainly it's more difficult to lose your empire and stay married and like move to Illyria and like live in like a random house, right? Like like if Anthony and Cleopatra just like hop on a boat and like flee to like oh like the current day Croatia and just like hide out and like try to make a life for themselves that certainly seems like more difficult than just killing yourself so to that degree it seems more romantic 
All right. If you want to see what, what are you willing to go through for love? If that's like our criteria. Um, but even that, these extensions, they seem like they're not all that useful and, and relative to the, the sort of sympathetic and, uh, emotionally provocative natures of these stories. They're, they're meant to get a rise out of us. Like we don't actually want to be like a vampire, you know, when we want to be with Bella. Like we don't actually want to be undead. It's like it's a it's a it's a mirror. It's a, it's actually the opposite of the ontological proof is true, which is like a greatness is often a reflection of a smallness, and you sort of can blow it out and uh, unpack that unpack that a little bit because I think that's I think that's great. But you might need to put the scaffolding under that idea. Oh yeah, sure, 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 sure. So um, so if in this ontological proof way of thinking, I can I can't. I have to have something greater than the thing that I'm conceiving because my faculty of conceiving exists within a larger framework. Well, what if one of the real main faculties of conceiving is to sort of take an element of a thing and then apply a, 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 a sort of almost like a Photoshop filter to it, you know, or like a like you can do something to an idea. And one of the things you can do to ideas, you can make it bigger, you can make it grander, right? You can make it brighter, you can make it, you can put a lens flare on it, like sure. you can. You can put a dither dissolve in there. You can do a star wipe. Like you can do all these things to ideas to morph them and change them. And if our lives exist on a specific scale and the sort of sense of the world around us is kind of the synthesis of a variety of neurological inputs that aren't really cogent until our brain makes them cogent, then maybe these grand ideas that we have about love are, are – are, mental faculty applying a grandness filter to something that is very actually true and actually quite small right uh, and and small in the sense of localized within ourselves like localized not only in sort of a certain part of our kind of emergent consciousness right um in our in our i mean i don't want to we can talk about emergence later. I don't really buy into 100%, but let's, for the sake of argument, let's just say like that. Like our self exists as sort of like a mental construction, an ongoing mental construction. Some portion of ourselves exists as this mental process that continues. And some, and this is happening in this lump in our head. And this some small part of the thing that is happening in that lump in our head is this spark of, of this idea for this other person. And this thing as it exists is like a very small thing. And you seek in your life to expand that thing. Like you, you get flowers, right? And the flowers are like the light shining through a pinhole onto a wall. And the flowers are like a bigger representation of that little spark in your head that is an idea of a feeling for a person. And then you get them a car or like – I don't want to say get them bigger and bigger things. That's a bad way to heighten the scene. It will run out of gas pretty soon. <laughs> um, but like you know, you profess your love to them or you like take them on a picnic or you like you know, save them from the Titanic or like you freeze to death on the Titanic. And then these things take these perverse turns as you try to find extreme ways of expressing them. Could, could God right? like, heighten the scene? so much that God himself could not hide in this scene anymore. I've actually, that happens in the third beats of Harold all the time. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, I'm God, you're in heaven. Okay, hi. Someone pull lights. <laughs> anybody? Is anybody going to pull the lights? Yeah, right. Nobody? I'm going to dance. I'm dancing. I'm doing a Russian accent and dancing in heaven. Scene is off the rails. <laughs> you know, pull the lights for Christ's sake. Pull the lights. <laughs> now I'm well, a Dracula. I love you because I'm a vampire. No, vampirism isn't about love. It's a metaphor. Anyway. Sorry, I think I missed my cue. Uh, you can email us at <laughs> podcastoverthinking.com or leave, call or text 203 uh, <laughs> You made me laugh and I forgot our, uh, I forgot our uh, phone number. 203-285-6401 or join in the conversation um, about taking umbrage at everything that Pete and I have said over the course of this hour plus. <laughs> Of, yep. of steaming podcast content. Uh, I, I didn't on, bring this big bucket of umbrage for nobody to take any of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
<laughs> uh, yes, and uh, right until until we come back with another episode of the podcast, perhaps one that is uh, perhaps one that is uh, more customary. Though this this was uh, fun, and I think a really interesting digression for the uh, for the podcast. Don't you think so, Pete? I think we should praise ourselves, and we did awesome. <laughs> Let us now <laughs> praise famous men. Pete Fenzel and Matt Rather once podcasted. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And where can you find those works? Why, www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. deserve. <laughs> Man, that was weird to have just two of us saying that at the end of the thing. I usually have to slow down because I usually have to deliberately slow down how I say it so that I don't run ahead of Mark when he's saying you probably doesn't deserve. And so I also, so that I create like a little bit of dissonance. There's a lot of mental faculty that goes into saying that probably doesn't deserve at the end of the podcast. Yeah, they're the guys who are always like trying to go slower than the other guys and putting in a little deserve at the end. I think those guys are assholes. Well, I'm sorry if every person who does anything to even displease you a little bit in the universe is an asshole, Matt. That's a that's a straw man, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it also happens to be what I think. <laughs>